Welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work, how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey, which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take, and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be speaking to people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who've had career changes to entrepreneurs who forge their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. I'm Jo Elvin, I'm the editor at New Magazine on the Mail on Sunday. And uh, world famous uh, editor, uh, Glamour Magazine. That might be stretching it. Uh, It's not stretching it at all. And so much more. When you look back at all the things that you've done, all the campaigns that you've run, which of them do you look back on and think, oh, actually, I really do think that made an impact? I definitely think um, with Glamour, and I think it gets forgotten that we were one of the first people to start really making a connection between young women or young people and mental health. Um, I know we, we did uh, Frankie... Stanford from the Saturdays on our cover and this was like 2011 I think Um, she'd had a a period of not being on stage with the band and sort of like nursing her own I think you know severe depression but what happened was because she wasn't saying anything um, there was a lot of speculation so uh, it became sort of like the cliched thing oh she must have an eating disorder she must be pregnant she must be on drugs And I think she was really keen to come out and just talk about, actually, the real reason was I was having these real mental health problems and I needed to look after myself. So um, Glamour being like the biggest women's magazine at the time, she approached me to talk about that. Um, Mental health was something that I'd seen the very darkest side of in my own family. So I felt really passionate about it. And I think that what I felt passionate about was I I know that it's, it's such a hidden thing where everybody, there's a real judgment that, well, you're so pretty, you're so rich, you're so successful, what the hell have you got to complain about? And that's what I wanted to address, because I think that that is what stops people getting help, this idea that it's, there must be a real, I must be faulty in some way, I'm, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed that I'm feeling like this and I need this help. So... We did a huge story on that and broke the story about this is why I've been away. I was severely depressed. I'm still probably going to be managing this my whole life. Um, we did, a, you know, as social media was so rife then already, we did a big video campaign with it. And the response I got to that was overwhelming. Um, and funnily enough, I still did get the odd letter going, she's so rich and pretty and successful. What's she got to complain about? And it's like, but this is exactly why... I'm doing this because she felt ashamed Mm -hmm. to actually admit this. And she was very nervous about doing that for that reason. And that's where it felt like something really important. And the letters, some of the letters I got from that um, really did move me to tears. People saying, I read that and this thing that I've been dealing with for months or even years, I finally 
had the courage to tell my mum or my husband or my boyfriend and we're going to see the GP tomorrow. And it was, I, I felt like, I, I did feel like that was a moment and that was the start. And then Frankie won a Mind Award. Um, it felt like the start of young women being able to talk more openly about that. I'm a huge believer in a problem shared is a problem halved, no matter what it is. And I think that it just sort of gave a lot of young women the permission, in a way, to look for that help. So seven years on from that, do you think things have changed? Yeah, I think they've changed to the point where um, anxiety is so part of the lexicon now. That, you know, I've, I've, sometimes I do wonder if everything gets labelled anxiety sometimes. And I think that it's, it becomes such a, a loaded term and I think that there's so much awareness of awareness that sometimes people think, are very, very quick to label, oh, I've got anxiety, and it actually ramps up the anxiety. Mm. The fact that it, So it, I think it's a fine line and that's why, again, I say talk to people, get help, don't self-diagnose, don't read one newspaper article or consult Dr Google and decide for yourself what's going on. But I, I, I think that that's the message that I've tried to do on, in any media that I've worked in, is just talk to somebody. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I, I can't, I'm not saying that it was all down to me, but I definitely felt like we tapped into a moment in time when people really wanted to discuss this. And, and I think that, again, coming from Australia as well, there's still that thing where I, I just notice in Britain that real, there's still that shame around needing help, mm. um, self-expression. Mm. So that's why another huge moment for me was when Prince Harry did Bryony Gordon's podcast and talked about his mental health struggles because I can't be the only one. You know, I remember watching those little boys walk behind that coffin mm. and thinking about them often and thinking, you know, it was sort of like, how the hell have they navigated that so publicly? Um, and I, I think that, there was a whole sort of like change in the zeitgeist in this country and the mood where 10 years ago, I don't think he would have dared to discuss that. So it's, it's interesting times, I think. And you took up the editorship of you a year ago. 18. Yeah, 18 months, yeah. So in terms of your agenda there, mm. do you see promoting that health, well-being agenda as still very important to you? Yes, and to be honest with you, um, that's always been a core tenet of you magazine anyway that predates me it's very it's it's very much known for its emotional connection the emotional punch of the features that they like to explore and the issues they like to explore i think my agenda more sort of like being in a way in through stealth and consistency i think is to just promote the visibility of older women um for i think that i'm actually writing today i, I write an editor's letter every week and i'm writing one today about my own relationship with getting older and I think that there's such a you know the media is to blame largely for this sort of like doesn't she look amazing at 40 like 40 you actually should just crawl into your own coffin you know and I think that a lot of people talk to me on my Facebook page when it's my birthday you get the announcement it's my birthday and it tells you my age and people are like wow you're brave you know and it's like why why is that brave I actually think that because I'm nearly 50, and I think that it's important for women like me who have that platform and that audience to be visible and older and still employable and still shopping in Zara. And <laughs> it's like, I think that it, we've got to get over this. You, can I swear? You this can say whatever you want. Absolute 
bullshit that you know women are sort of unattractive or undynamic or irrelevant once they're past 45. And I, I feel like I've got the real chance to be the vanguard of that because one of the things that I, I did want to change when I came to you is I felt like it's a brilliant magazine, but it, I didn't get a sense of joy when I read it. And that's what I want. I want there to be, I don't want it to just be us discussing our sort of our hormones and our loneliness and our emptiness. That's all part of it. But God, you know, no periods, no children at home, more money. It's awesome as well. You know, so that's kind of, I want to sort of bring that to a bit more light and joy to it in that way. And when you got to you, did you set out to the new team how you wanted to take things forward? No, I, I kind of, it's interesting you ask that because it's, it's a tough one that. Um, and I think it's an diff- interesting one for a female boss to navigate. Uh, I definitely think it's different to a male boss. My new editor started at the paper, and it was like a hurricane. It was like, you know, this is how we do things. Boom. You, you now live under the sea. The, you know, the, the difference was that palpable. And I felt like I was in a washing machine for about two or three weeks just adjusting to the way he liked to do things. And then it was like, okay, this is it. And it was short, sharp. This is how I manage. Um, sometimes I think I probably should have done that when I joined you, but I did the female thing. Nobody panic. I'm just going to see what everybody does. I'm going to take a few months, figure it out, see what people do. And actually then, you know, I, I did have to make changes. And I think that, that it, it was probably slightly awful in that people thought, oh, nothing's going to change. And then suddenly a load of things change. But to be honest with you, as much as I think... Maybe I should have done the washing machine hurricane thing. I don't think that's as palatable or acceptable from female bosses yet. I don't know. But do you think it's a better approach? I don't know. I think it's like, you know, it's the same as like, is it better to have a long, slow, painful death where you know you're dying and you get to tell everybody goodbye? Or is it better to have the short, sharp thing where suddenly you're there one day and suddenly you're not? There's no good way to do that. I kind of feel it's it's just different approaches, and I think I can see the pros and cons of both. I think it's probably, and I'm not implying at all that my old boss just walked in and sacked everybody. He just completely changed the way he did things. One of the things I would say is when I came to this job, I'd been doing Glamour for 17 years, and I suppose I presumed I didn't have anything to learn anymore. And this job has been a joy in that I've got lots to learn. And what have you learned most about? Well, just sort of like it's a, it's a different management style. It's a more it's not as softly, softly perfumed, rounded edged. It's you know it's it's good or it's terrible. It's going in or it's being dumped. It's you know you you've done a good thing or you've done a bad thing, and um, I actually I'm quite enjoying the cut and thrust of that, and I love the reactivity of being on a newspaper. I've not had that before. So I'm finding it's a very um, uh, level and respectful playing field, actually. I'm really enjoying that. And if you were to say there are lots of people, I suspect, listening to this podcast who've been in a job for a very long time and have thought about whether they should go and then they move to a new job. Um, Looking back now over those last 18 months, new team, new boss, new challenge, what bits of advice would you give to somebody it, it was hard, and I think that I, I, you know, I'd stayed in one job for a long time because it was a great job. And I remember always saying to people who came to work with me, new or went to new jobs, I think you have to give 
a new job six months to feel like you own it, to feel like you're comfortable in it, to feel like you, you know, you don't feel like the idiot in the room. Um, but it was so funny. I've been giving that advice for years. And when I had to live it, it was so interesting because it, it was really hard. It was a completely new culture. I was still probably smarting a little bit from, you know, I was grieving the old job still a little bit. It was a new team. I was, it was my first new job in nearly 20 years. And I inherited a team who had been pretty static for about 20 years. So it was really, I was sort of mindful it was very difficult for them as well to suddenly, suddenly you live under the sea, <laughs> suddenly this is how we do things. And I think that it's, you have to take one day at a time. And I think particularly going from a monthly to a weekly, I thought every time I thought I really want to change things, another week would roll by and another deadline would happen. And I couldn't change it because it had to go to the printers. And so I really, I was getting really despondent, and a bit frustrated about that. So I just set myself the goal of every week, what's one thing you can do this week to make a change? And if I got through the week and I'd done one thing that had put my stamp on it and it was a change that I wanted to make, I was like, okay. And then slowly that builds and that's an incremental change. And I think that, I don't know, it just takes people a long time to get used to you. So I think I had days where I, I did think, oh God, you know, have I done the right thing? You know, there's a People are finding me difficult because they're not used to my decisions or whatever, but it does. You, you do, you can't. I, I had a friend who years ago, I think he did three days in a new job and resigned. And I just think you've got to, for your own dignity, I think as well, for your own peace of mind that you've really given something, everything, you've got to give it at least six months a year. And I think I did set myself, when I was sort of finding it difficult to, to make the changes I wanted to, I was saying to friends, I'm making myself do a year and then reflect. And I had friends who said to me, sorry, I really ramble. I had friends who said to me, look, do a year and look back after that year at what you've done. And that's what I, I did, really. And did you have any points in that year when you really thought, this was a bad move, this isn't right for me? No, I didn't actually, no. I just had days where I thought, God, this is, um, and it's so, my husband teases me a lot. He's, he's teasing me about going on a podcast that's about happiness because I'm known for my sarcasm and gallows humour and whinging on the tube every morning. And there, were, there were times when I was like, God, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. I think I'd, I'd built the team at Glamour. So from day one, I had the team who I'd moulded in my image and crafted the way I wanted. And I, I honestly the sheer naivety of me to think, oh, you just walk in and just tell everyone what to do and, and you change it. <laughs> it was just such a wake-up call. It's like, no, change takes time. I always liken it to trying to turn around the Titanic with a piece of string. And, you know, it is a monster. It's a juggernaut of a product, You Magazine. And I remember thinking, when I was sitting at Glamour, thinking, You Magazine, that'd be a great job, wouldn't it? You don't have to worry about the newsstand sales. You know, it's, it's contained within a thing. It's... Um, and my husband says, you thought it was going to be easy, didn't you? And I was like, yeah, I think I really did. And it's probably one of the hardest jobs I've ever done, but in that way, it's, the challenge is actually really rewarding. I want to pick up on two things that you said. One is about gender, and the other is about culture, where you're from. So you were talking about the fact that the uh, British are more reserved. Yeah. And you were saying it's more difficult or different for women in management roles than men. Mm. So as an Australian woman, how's it different? How's it more difficult? How's that helped you? Well, being Australian, I think um, 
Australians and British speak the same language, um, but I definitely, when I got to this country in 1992, I was young, I was probably quite cocky, you know, and I, I think that um, I definitely had to learn to speak British English rather than Australian English. Tiny things, I always think about, I used to go to the coffee shop every morning with one of the guys I worked with at this magazine called TV Hits, and one day he was just sort of like chuckling to himself. I said, what? And he said, like, nothing. I said, no, what? And he said, it's every morning you, you say, can I get a tea and a toast? And he, he was, thought it was profoundly rude to say, get. So he was like, can I have or may I have? And I was like, so it, it, and it's just tiny things like that. And, and I know I was in Australia um, in July and people start sentences there. It's like an um. People say, look. People start sentences go, look, what I think is, and I'd be on the phone to someone and I'd say, uh, oh, listen, or look. And it was, people took real offense to it. It feels, and I see hear it now, it just feels like a real directive rather than a just a pause thing. So it's just little things like that where I came across people just thinking, who is this cow? But it was just the difference in the way you frame slang and colloquialism. So there's things like that. Um, I think it was really funny. I always used to joke that um, I got my job at Condé Nast when the HR director was on holiday. Because um, I, I remember one of the first questions she asked me, I'd been hired and then I had to go and meet her for lunch. And one of the first questions she asked me was, what did your father do? And I said, I don't know. Um, which was not the right answer, apparently. Because <laughs> he worked, he's retired now, he worked in... Um, he worked for Texaco, which is called Caltex in Australia, and I think he, he had something to do with... Basically, all I know about his job is that if an oil tanker toppled over, a, a, you know, a petrol tanker toppled over and spilled petrol all over a highway somewhere, it was my father that got the call at 4 o'clock in the morning. And that's all I can tell you about that job. And that was, you know, I, I didn't have sort of like the lineage of the schools they recognised or any of that. And that's another, you know, you really notice... Um, the class obsession when you come to England. It's not that Australia is classless. We're not stupid. We know there are hierarchies and classes, but it's not the everyday underlying fabric of every interaction and conversation the way I think it is here. Do you think being Australian has been helpful? I think it, it definitely was at Condé Nast. That it, I think it just gave me that get-out-of-jail-free card. I was not placeable, so therefore... I don't know. It was just like, oh well, she's she's <coughs> she's experienced and she's done magazines, so let's just roll the dice on this and <laughs> see what happens. And so, what about gender? You said it's different managing as a woman. How's it? I different? think so. I think that you know, I, and I I don't want to be accused of sort of like moaning and playing that card, and I'm I'm definitely not going to name and shame particular organisations because I've you know worked for a lot of places here, but I've I've definitely over the years noticed that. It really is true, and I think it's hard for men to see. And I, I don't think men are willfully ignoring it, but I think it's hard for men to see that if you voice a strong opinion or a direct opinion as a woman, it's not accepted in the same way as it is if you're a man. It just isn't, and, I, and I've lived that experience. I've lived the experience of putting my hand up and saying an idea and ten minutes later having a man say it and everybody ignore You know, I, I mean, I've had that many, many times, and I think... I wonder sometimes if I'm guilty of that myself with other women. I think it's there is just a sort of like a weird code that we have to try and mm -hmm. be conscious of 
and unpick. And you see it on a, on a world stage. You see that, you know, there's a, an extra layer of suspicion in society around a Hillary Clinton that there isn't around a Donald Trump. You know, and I think it's, I'm afraid, it's a truth that we all have to accept our responsibility in. And how does that change? Does that change? Um, well, I think that it, it, it probably by talking about it and probably by being um, the fearless trailblazers who don't start a sentence with an apology or um, don't soften the edges on being decisive. And, you know, it's a, it's a long game, Mark. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I certainly don't have all the answers, but I think that it's what I love about the double-edged sword of social media is is that it, I think that those conversations and the people who get murderously, disproportionately angry about this little thing happening over here, I think it raises everybody's awareness on the incremental things that ultimately add up to something that matters. And would you say you're happier at you than you were at Glamour? Um, I, well, I think that's really hard because I'm, I'm loving you and I loved Glamour. I think that Glamour was bloody hard the last two or three years and that's nobody's fault it was what I'm loving about you and I keep saying is that it, it's coming back to that thing where um, doing good work and 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 caring and putting your all into it is having a positive consequence and I've certainly been glamour's not the only place where um, you can find yourself particularly in the precarious world of media working really hard and doing really good stuff and it doesn't have any positive consequence because the market's changed, the consumer's changed. Mm. For us, it was very disheartening that we were still selling 350,000 copies a month, but the advertising market had just completely changed around us. Um, and so that was, it was very, very hard to keep morale up, my own morale and everybody else's morale in that circumstance. So compared, like, you know, the last few years of Glamour, to now, yeah, I'm, I'm much happier. I think it was, the, I probably should have left long before I did. Um, and I think that I'm now back doing a publication that's much more in tune with my life stage and, you know, the audience that I understand. So, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, Glamour was a brilliant time for you, 17 years. Yeah. Um, internationally acclaimed for what you did. What was, for you, the high watermark? of being a glamour. Can, can, wow. can you remember a time or a day or a moment when you thought, this is really great? Honestly, there are so many. It was, and that's probably, that was the seduction of why it was hard to walk away. Um, because it was, it was so adored by its audience. And I think that when I left, one of the things I realised very quickly that I was going to miss was talking to an audience. Because you get so much great stuff back when you've got that platform. Um, but I think it's, it's things like um, being the first magazine. And it's funny to think now, I mean, even Adele said, oh, God, this is so brave of you. And it wasn't brave, but it was, at the time, it was unusual to put a not-size-eight woman on the cover. And there was some sort of internal consternation about that. It sold um, 750,000 copies and remains the biggest-selling issue we ever did. That was incredible. Um, but also terrifying because it was, what was it, like 2011, and you think, we are never going to sell 750,000 again. That's the only way it's down. Oh. But um, things like that, you know, launching uh, the Glamour Women of the Year Awards and that becoming this international attention-grabbing thing. Um, 
you know, Lily Allen getting really drunk and being thrown over a fence and all the headlines. You know, we had some things like that as well. It was just there were lots of sort of like cultural moments, that cultural pieces of conversation that came from Glamour. And that was, that still kind of blows me away a bit. And then going to the, the more difficult times, so you were saying over the last few years, as the market changed, everything got more difficult. Mm. How did you and the team, and how did you help the team cope with those more difficult times? Well, you know, it's funny, and I still wonder about this, because I, I, I felt like I was constantly navigating, keeping people engaged and excited about it and wanting to do it and wanted to give it their all um, with you know the reality it was really hard when people are working really hard and we'd had some redundancies and things like that so people are working harder than they ever have and they can't understand why they can't have a pay rise <laughs> because I've been going isn't it great look what we've done you know it was like navigating that making people feel like this is a great place to work with do you know, the reality is the business just isn't what it was and we need to, you know, and so that was, that was a real tightrope for me to walk as a middle manager, I felt. That was, and that was the stress on me, I think, which was quite hard. Um, and how did that stress manifest itself? Um, how did it? Well, it's funny. I remember saying to um, the last PA I had, a lovely girl called Anna, who's at Hello Now, she um, was so excited to be there. She was very young and very keen. And I remember saying to her, I think that you probably got the worst version of me because she'd be also like happy. And I was, you know, probably more bad tempered than I'd been in the whole job the whole time. Um, you know, obviously sleepless nights, worry, all of that stuff. Um, the other way I um, deal with stress is. I think I just try to write things down and, and similar to what I was saying about find the one thing you can do. It's like I, I do try to focus on, well, what can I do? And so we threw ourselves into doing all the stuff that we sort of like felt was keeping us an energetic, relevant brand, you know, sort of like social media, video. We launched a podcast. You know, it, 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 and so it was um, finding the creative ways to keep looking, you know, to, to keep it a dynamic brand, I think. And I think to, for a large part that worked. I mean, it was, we were still getting amazing content, amazing covers. The last Glamour Women of the Year Awards, my God, it was probably the most successful. It made the most money. It had the most column inches. So I think that, I think that's why a lot of people were really shocked when um, they changed it to a sort of like a mostly online offering because to the outside world, you wouldn't have really known that actually we were trying to find ways to make the business more profitable. More sustainable. Yeah. And um, uh, the great film, uh, uh, The Devil Wears Prada, <laughs> do you think that that's uh, a good depiction of how you might have uh, run <laughs> things in Glamour? I always used to joke to the team that I've, you know, I, I wish I'd had that as my training manual. Does any of that feel true oh yeah to an extent I mean it was a hyperbolic kind of you know there are definitely in 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 the glory days of when magazines were sort of like vomiting money you know in every corner of the world yeah I mean there was some real grand dams male and female of editors you know there's the the days of 
the town car idling outside 24 hours a day are over. But they, they did exist. You know, I never had that. I remember when I started at Condé Nast, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get a driver. No, I didn't get a driver. But, um, you know, I probably did sort of hammer the Addison Lee account, but I didn't have a driver. But, um, yeah, there's definitely, and I think that that's, you know what, for as much as people can sort of like eye roll and moan and bitch about that, that's kind of the whole fabulous myth of magazines that people love. But I was only saying to my husband this morning, I, some of the things I've heard about myself, like, you know, one PA told me that the rumour going around about, the story going around about me was that I'd sort of like come out of my office one day and said, I need every pair of orange Manolos, get them now. And I was like, I've never said anything like that in my life. But if people, but people really want to believe that stuff. Yeah. So, hey, you know. And, yeah. and um, for any budding uh, wannabe uh, editor or journalist, what advice would you give them? Um, marry a hedge funder. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I mean, it's the jobs are different. There aren't as many jobs. Um, there are sort of like a lot more more lower paid jobs than when I started, and that's that's the bad news. But it's I think that you've got to the, the advice I give interns and um, high school and university students is don't narrow the field of where you can get your experience. Um, I love telling the story of the woman I hired who'd been who couldn't find a job in magazines in London, so she moved to Peterborough to take up a job on an auto sort of like a car mechanics magazine and that's was that her passion god no but she threw herself into it because that was the opportunity that was presented in front of her so by the time she came to interview for me at glamour her portfolio was full of six thousand word things about engine pistons and petrol cylinders and, and all this sort of stuff and i was like if you can really you know just decide to be passionate about that and throw your all into it then you're amazing and I've got to save you from Peterborough and the car magazine. And now she's married to a very sexy man and living in Spain and freelance writing. And so I just think that take those opportunities, even if they're not the dream scenario, because you will meet people. Um, one of the things I love about the media is no matter what you hear about working at this nasty paper or that tabloid rag, everybody in there is usually so lovely and we all sort of like scatter and we all go and work other places. And so you will quickly build up a network wherever you work. And that's going to be very useful if you've shown that you're tenacious and you're keen and you work hard. And growing up uh, as a young girl in Australia, did you set your sights on being a journalist and an editor? I did, actually. Yeah, I, I was... Um, I think it's different now for kids. I think it's much harder to... You don't sort of like have the job for life or the career for life anymore. They're, you know, um, and I'm seeing, watching my daughter navigate that now. She doesn't know yet what she wants to do. But I was her age when now I... Old she? She's 14. Mm -hmm. And I, I was her age when I knew... I didn't know I want to be an editor of a top, top magazine in Britain. But I knew I wanted to work in magazines. And it's funny what you were saying earlier about them being a platform of people really adoring them. I feel like, you know, I was a bit of a a dork of a kid. I looked like a boy till I was about 20. I didn't have the fabulous social life of some of my, you know, hotter looking teenage peers. And um, magazines, this is going to sound so sad, but magazines were my friend. <laughs> and I learned early on how sort of powerful and how helpful and reassuring they could be. I've never sort of really, I know a lot of people feel that they're 
the thing that undermines self-esteem and undermines reassurance, but it was the total opposite for me. And that it, I just gravitated, and I remember my first day doing work experience at the teen mag, Dolly in Australia, I, I honestly, I just was like, I never want to leave this place. This is, this is exactly how I hoped it would be, and this is what I want. And so I suppose it was being that enthusiastic about it was the thing that helped me to get noticed and helped me to stay, because if they'd said, Joe, can you go and lick that piece of lino over there, I would have been so thrilled to do it. And that's, I think that that's what was noticed about me. And then big move to come to the UK. Yeah. So, so just talk us through making that huge step away from Australia. Well, it was it was working at, at Dolly magazine where I eventually landed a job as a writer. And, you know, I was surrounded by all these other women who were between 20 and 30. And, you know, then particularly the fashion team, the fashion editor who worked there, she was one of the first women on earth to spot Kate Moss as a model. And she, I remember her saying, oh, God, I'm desperate. There's this new girl at Storm. I'm desperate to get her for the shoot. And I looked and I was like, she's a bit weird looking, you know. Okay, whatever you want, Carlotta, that's fine. But And Kate Moss did one of her first shoots for Dolly magazine. And, you know, but the, so those girls were forever traveling to London or, you know, they'd go to Greece for a shoot or America or whatever. And then I'd say to somebody in the art team, well, where'd you get that jacket? That's amazing. Oh, I got that in um, in Milan or, or Paris. I'd be like, man, these people are so cool, you know. Never going to travel. Never going to do anything. And I remember um, one of them saying to me one day, "Well, you know, you could. Um, y- you're you're young enough. You can get one of those sort of like working travel visas. You could go and work in England for a couple of years, and they they just let you do that." And I was like, "Mind blown, you know." And so I kind of just did. I did the backpacking thing. I got the working holiday visa, and. Um, I don't know, I think by the time I'd done that, I'd, I'd worked at Dolly Magazine, I'd been a publicist for a little while for Neighbours, the TV show, um, and I just thought I want, I just got it in my head that I wanted to try working in magazines over here, so I just came and waitressed and did bar work. And, and can you think of um, a thing that's happened through your career that you look back on and you think, that didn't go well, I really regret that moment, I wish something had happened, something that you've really learned um, from? Well, the thing is, I mean, it's like there are things that you learn from. I'm not sure if I'd say, oh, I wish that didn't happen. I mean, I got fired um, from a job when I was about 27. It was a magazine called B, which was like, um, it was like an older teen thing. And I'd been the very successful editor of Sugar in the same company. And I think everybody kind of assumed that lightning would strike twice. And it didn't. And because this second magazine was nowhere near as successful as what Sugar had been, there was a lot of internal struggling. It was a joint venture. There were two sets of masters to satisfy. And they fought about what the editorial direction should be all the time. I was getting mixed messages. Um, I didn't handle that stress very well at all. Um, But I think that, I don't know, I feel like I kind of needed to learn that lesson the hard way in order to go on and handle stress and managers a lot better going forward. Mm. So, and I'm certainly not blameless in, um, you know, I think that I was a big sort of like teary, argumentative stress ball, probably a pain in the arse. And we hear quite often now that a younger generation coming through, millennials, are less resilient Do you think that's true? No, I've got quite strong opinions about this. I've I've written about this a lot. I feel like 
I was a millennial before millennials were invented. I think it's just being called young. And you don't really, I don't know if you feel the same. I, I look back at my 20s and you think you're fully formed. But it's almost like when I look back now, I can almost feel the gaps in my brain that hadn't closed over. Do you know what I mean? I feel like the parts of my personality that I hadn't developed, I didn't notice then that I notice now when I look back. And I think that it's, I was a mix of you have to be confident, but the double-edged sort of that is arrogance. And arrogance is born of not realising how much you don't know yet. <laughs> and I, I think that it's, and I just recognise that so much in young people. And I, I think it's so unfair to say, young people lack ambition or resilience. I think they're growing up in a different world to you and me. I don't know how I would navigate the, I don't know what, what I see is not a lack of opportunities, but certainly a, a different way that they have to navigate opportunities. They have to be more nimble than we did mm -hmm. with our career choices. They have to be more malleable as the robots take over more and more of the jobs mm -hmm. that they won't be able to do. And when I talk to young people, I see a mix of hunger and ambition and utter terror. And that's where I feel like they're coming from. And they, you go through all this pressure when you're at your GCSE year and university. These are the most important exams of your life. These are the most important decisions you have. So we, we brainwash these kids to think that every decision they make today is set in concrete and stone and irreversible and irrecoverable, and, and I sort of spend a lot of time with young people trying to unpick that, saying, just go for the opportunity that's here today. What if it's the wrong choice? You'll still learn something from it. And, and, and I think that we, we crippled them a little bit, and then we go, oh, you can't handle it. And I, and I think that's really unfair. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Okay, Joe. what we're going to do now is the Workplace Happiness Survey. Yeah. Uh, do I get a prize? Definitely. Everybody gets a prize because mm. they learn something about themselves. The survey has... The survey... I could say to you, if you, if you get uh, 100%, you get cash. Oh, all right. Um, yeah. If um, this survey has been taken by tens of thousands of people all over the world, all different uh, job types... And what it does is it compares how you regard your happiness engagement at work to people who look like you, your okay. age, your gender, your job. And then it tells you where you may or may not have scope to improve your workplace happiness and engagement. Wow. So uh, it's very quick to take. It takes us about, well, if I wasn't going to ask you questions we went through, it'd take about seven minutes. It might take us a bit longer. And at the end of it, uh, we'll get your score. Imagine if at the end of it I resign. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Joe, thank you very much for doing the Workplace Happiness Survey. Uh, you have a choice of what language you want to do it in. Uh, we've either got English or Australian. Well, you know, you. well, uh, yeah. Uh, let's go English. Okay. Let's try that. It's the first test. So, first question. Do I feel appropriately rewarded for my work? Um... Yeah, I'd have to say yes. I mean, you know, who, who's ever going to turn down more money? But So let's give that a nine. So have you ever yeah. had a job where you have not feel, felt that you were properly rewarded? Who hasn't? Who hasn't had one of those jobs? And I, I mean, but you'd have to probably go way back in, into the annals of history. I think, you know, I think I've been pretty lucky the last decade or so. So, yeah. And when you, for that occasion when you thought you weren't, what did you do? 
Um, well, I was very young and I put up with it and didn't say boo to a goose. And if I had my time to do back over again, I probably would say something about that. Because I remember I resigned from that job. It was Dolly. And the deputy editor came and said, can I just get a list of everything that you do? And I hadn't had a pay rise in three years. And um, I wrote down everything I did. And she said, the new girl they were getting in couldn't possibly do all of this. <laughs> I'm so upset. But, you know, I was 21 years old and I didn't have a voice yet. So, yeah. So if one of your team at you came up to you and said that they were uh, unhappy with their pay reward. Yeah. What would be a good way of approaching you and having that conversation and what would be a less good way? Um, I think that, I think just to be sort of, I, I think you have to set out your case about what value you're bringing to the company. And I think that it, it's always a bit of a compelling argument if you know the rough logistics of what the market value is that you're benchmarking against. Um, so I think that, and what I don't, respond to is um, I need more money because I'm moving into central London or, or because my wife's just had another baby or do you know what I mean it's like I, I it has to be something rational about what you feel you're being you're doing for the business that's yeah great mm. okay so what school are you going to give yourself let's do a nine okay because you know I didn't want wouldn't want anyone to think that I, you know, I would say no to a pay rise. So, Very yeah. good. Yeah. Next, am I happy with my working hours? Yes, I am actually. Very happy. I think it's... Um one of the joys, it's very stressful doing a weekly. You have a very set deadline every week, but then it's done and it has to be done. So it doesn't matter if I'm there till 10 o'clock in the evening. There's no... I kind of feel like we're very organised. We pride ourselves on being organised. There might be the occasional staying in the office till eight, nine o'clock, but very occasional. And then I do a lot of, and in fact, tonight I'm at an event after work. But I don't know, it's just not the kind of job you can do unless you're really happy to do all of that. If you're sort of thinking, if you're really clocking up the hours that you've spent doing it, it's not the job for you. So, and juggling family life? Yeah, I mean, that's, it, it's... Um, Sometimes fine and sometimes a real nightmare. Um, I, I was bemoaning yesterday. My daughter's went back to school today. And yesterday, I think I must have had about eight emails from the school going, right, so this evening's coming up and that evening's coming up and that day. And you just think, oh, my God. And there, so there are days like yesterday where I feel completely overwhelmed. I've really grown since I've had a school-aged child to dread September. Um, I, there are parents who can't wait for the school holidays to be over. I love the school holidays. I love... She's not stressed. She's still in her pyjamas when I leave now because she's a bit more self-sufficient. I love not having that relentless school run thing. Um, and I do, sometimes it's hard. I find that as she's getting older, she needs me in more emotional ways than in perfunctory ways. So she needs help with homework, which I don't understand. She's had a bad day with her friends, which is, you know, punches you in the gut. So I just try to be there when I can and be at home when I'm at home and at work when I'm at work. Okay. So let, I'm going to do nine again. Okay. Uh, do I feel recognised when I do something well? Yeah, yes, I do, actually. Yeah. Who, who recognises you? Um, my boss is very, very good at... at um, I, you know, and I see him do it with lots of people. He's very good at acknowledging when someone's done something good. Um, I love the reader feedback. That's hugely important to me. Um, 
And I don't know, I just, you see it in things like uh, our advertising revenue is doing very well, which is a nice endorsement that people like the magazine. Um, yeah, I don't know, it's in lots of different ways. you recognising your team? I hope so. I think, I hope so. I think that that's for other people to answer. Um, I, I certainly do try to do that. And I'm certainly, I'm a big believer in, if I've done something good, I will make sure that everyone knows that it was me who did that. But if they've done something good, I feel strongly that my boss knows it was them who did You know, so I feel, I, I hope I do that. Okay. Uh, what do I feel? I'm going to say nine again. Do I have enough information to do my job well? Well, that's an interesting one. Because a lot of the information I need comes from people who don't want to give you the information. <laughs> You know, celebrities, uh, all that sort of thing. So I think that's a really, that's a, that's a hard sort of like one size fits all question and, to And in answer. the context of um, the organisation, do you feel that your editor gives you the information you need to be able to produce what you need to produce? Yeah, and I think that it's, what for me, what's, um, what makes the difference is having the resource um, more than, I don't know, what, what do you mean by information? How would you characterise that in what I do? Because... I don't know, I feel like it's up to me to generate the information. Do you so, know what I mean? Yeah, so Glamour Magazine, one of the things you were saying is over the last two years, it became very difficult because you were very aware of the commercial and economic model yeah. and what a strain that was. And you had information about what you needed to do to make that sustainable. Yeah. And so it's clear there that you had enough information to yeah. do your job. Uh, but a lot of people, when they go to work, feel as though they're kept in the dark. They don't either have the technical information to do their job well, i.e. I haven't been trained well enough to do my job. Oh, I see. Or yeah. people are not giving me the information to perform. No, I, I, it's, it, I mean, it's the male group. It's a hugely well-oiled machine. And um, I feel really... I definitely feel respected on the business level. So, you know, here's, here's the state of the business. Here's what we need to do. Here's what we don't need to do. And on a creative level as well, I really enjoy the dialogue between me and the editor. We sort of like constantly talk about what our mission is. For and so, so yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to okay. give that a ten. So this is about the wider organisation now. Do I feel information is openly shared with me at work? Um, yeah, I think I do. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, as you can imagine, in any big organisation, there's a, a lot of sort of, you know, internal competition, internal politics, all, all that sort of stuff. I'm kind of, I'm quite glad to divorce myself from as much of that as I possibly can. Um, yeah, I think, I think so. I think, you know, we have regular, every Tuesday there's a huge sort of meeting about all of what's going on. Um, there things like... Um, the state of the business, sometimes you walk in and it's on a massive big LED screen as you walk in. So I think, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say nine. I'm going to say nine because I, I, I don't know what I don't know. Maybe there is stuff they're not telling me. I don't know. Am I empowered to make decisions? Yes. Yes, which is, um, you know, equal parts fabulous and terrifying. You know, sort of like... Um, yeah, as I say, it's the first time in a long time I've worked for an editor, so he has final say. So I'm probably not as autonomous as I was at Glamour. But I'm still, you know, hugely responsible for you magazine. So let's go eight. 
Do I feel trusted to make decisions? Yes. Nine, that is. Do I have the resources to do it 100%? I've never, I, I mean, especially after coming from Glamour where everything was so tightly run. Do I have the resources to do my job well? Where I had writers sort of like doing stuff for the print in the morning and furiously doing online stuff in the afternoon and, you know, and all of this sort of stuff that people really sort of like really honing down and multitasking. The first day I started at U Magazine and I said, right, let's just gather the team and I'll... I felt like I was addressing Wembley. <laughs> it was like, wow, there's lots of people here, um, which I probably shouldn't say out loud in case they notice it. And, but, um, yeah, I feel like it's... Uh, they... It, it, one of the things I love about the male group is that the number one passion and priority in the new reality of media business, it's still the product. It's still journalism it's still getting the story and that that comes first and um i'm really enjoying the benefits of well no you need to spend that money you need to you've got to get it so you know i really enjoy that so there's a big contrast between those sort of later years at glamour with budgets being cut and i think so yeah 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 okay uh let's go nine you probably think I'm lying about all this, don't you? Because no. the scores are so high. No, no. I'm enjoying this. Am I happy with my working environment? I have the most embarrassingly nice office. Um, That's because Georgie Gray had it once. It, it wasn't. No. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> nobody's office is as fancy as Geordie Gregg's. Um, but uh, I remember I, I was in um, one office when I started there. And then because they wanted to expand um, their online team, they came to me and said, we've got terrible news, Joe, but you're going to have to move. I was like, oh, okay. Just one floor up. I have got a, a Devil Wears Prada-style office now. It's insane. And there are people... I don't really know how this happened, but there are people on the mag- on, in the organisation who are way more senior and more important to me who I pray never come into my office because I know that my office is nicer than theirs. Um, the team's very happy. It's a beautiful building. We looked out on a fountain and a koi pond for crying out loud there's a nice canteen and a coffee shop i'd certainly sort the toilets out but apart from that i think it's really nice so let's do let's do seven because the toilets that's a whole other discussion yeah um do i feel my views are heard at work yes yes on the whole yes i'm not the ultimate boss but yes i think let's do eight again and do you listen to the views of your team or i should say oh yeah absolutely oh god yeah i uh, Absolutely, I'm definitely. Um, I don't. I don't think I would ever be a successful autocrat. I think there comes a point when you have to make the decision. But I love a bit of group therapy. I love a bit of hearing from the floor. I, you know, and sometimes I think my team know that um, I will sort of like do a round table, and I still might just make up my own mind about something. But I love to feel like I've really heard every possible scenario so yeah uh do i feel the organization cares for my well-being well there's a doctor <laughs> it's amazing it's amazing i was like it's a particular you want to talk about being a working mum? there's i had this bloody awful ear infection last year and i was like you know you just think well when the hell am i going to get to sort that out and then i remembered there's a nurse and it was like oh my god so i didn't even have to leave the building um but yes, I, I, I think they do. I think they're very, um, yeah, 
they're very mindful of things like morale and, yeah. Uh, let's go nine. Do I rarely feel depressed and anxious at work? Um, I think I probably often feel anxious at work, but not because of anything terrible. I think that it's you, I don't think it's a necessarily a healthy thing if I'm not stressed about what's going to be on that cover or making sure that that story's 100% right. I think there's a definite natural level of anxiety that just comes with the territory. But I think I've become adept at um, handling that. The way, I ha you know, the way I handle it is group therapy, teamwork, how are we going to solve this problem, what are we doing, what can everybody in this room do to sort this situation out. Um, depressed, no. No, I'm definitely, even in my own personal life, I'm more of an, an, of an anxiety person than a depressed person, if you know and what I mean. Do you share things at home with your husband about work? I do, because he works at the Telegraph, so he, he understands it. You know, so he, we know, we, you know, what, it, what it's like. It's, and a lot of the, it's more, it's not even sort of like, it, the problems that I tend to share with my husband are the things that if you don't laugh, you'll cry. You know, so it's things like the other day we had a, a celebrity publicist who was screaming at us saying, I told you that this person is not going to turn up unless you've got this makeup artist. I've been saying it for weeks. The shoot was the next day. I was like, she said, I told you and I told you and I told you. you literally, this is the first time you've mentioned it. And you just have to laugh about it. And this is what celeb world is like. So it's things like that that give you an adrenaline anxious spike 20 times a day. So I'd have to say, no, I rarely, you know, I, do I rarely feel anxious at work? Not really. So let's go four for that. Or is that, does that mean I have to say? So if you're rarely anxious, you're a 10. Yes, yeah, so I know. Yeah. If you're more, yeah. if you are anxious, then yeah, no, no, no. you're a There's definitely zero. A, always a general consistent hum of anxiety. Um, do I feel I'm doing something worthwhile? Well, I'd certainly do more after talking to you, Mark. Um, no, I do. I feel I get an amazing amount of feedback from people that, you know, and even things like um, we did a story a little while ago just about the accident, the, the silly um, backhanded compliments that people give. And it was, again, it was a gallows humour kind of, if you don't laugh about this, you'll cry. And a woman wrote to me and said that, you know, her daughter was... Um, her younger daughter was um, having cancer treatment and it was a, like a really grim day where they'd had terrible news and I actually might well up talking about this right now but, and she said that was the one bright spot they had in their day when they were crying laughing at this and even little things like that just mm -hmm. think god you just the, the impact that you don't even really register that will happen when you're just thinking deadline six o'clock get it out get it mm -hmm. out get it out so um, I'd probably I don't want to be too immodest. What score do you reckon I should give myself there, Mark? I don't know. Um, so I, I think you do something very worthwhile. Well, let's, let's go, what do you think? Let's go eight, because I am proud of it. Mm. Um, do I feel proud to work for my organisation? Yes, I do. Um, I think that there's... And, it, you know, there's a lot of mud slung at um, the male group. Um, but I feel like... I don't think you can have any news organisation that doesn't have light or shade um, opinions that you don't like. Um, but I, what I love about the male is um, they're not afraid of any opinions. So my editor is quite happy to um, 
you know, I think that they've been sort of like hypercritical lately of um, some of the royals, but then he's quite happy for my columnist Elizabeth Day to really slag off that criticism and have an impassioned defence of the royals on her pages in You magazine, and that's something I'm hugely proud of to work at. So I'm going to say nine. How likely are you to recommend your friends and family to work at your organisation? Um, yeah, I'd say highly likely. Um, they treat you well, they pay well, they understand um, the need for resource and information. Um, there's lots of very, very nice people there. And there's a fish pond. Let's do nine. Do I feel that I'm treated with respect? Yes, 100%. I'm going to go 10. Uh, do I enjoy my job? I think yes. 10. Do I feel I have a good relationship with my line manager? Absolutely yes. Um, yes, 10. Do I feel I'm being developed? Um, well, yeah, as well as I said to you before, I feel like I'm, I'm not sure if there's a conscious kind of like mentoring program of a 50-year-old magazine editor who's been doing it for a thousand years, but I feel like I, I feel like I'm learning in an environment um, that I haven't been in before. So I'm going to say nine. And did you ever have a mentor? Have you ever had a mentor? I've had secret mentors. I've had people. I haven't. I've haven't had a formally ever sat down with somebody, but I've certainly had people that I clock and I sort of quietly learn from. Mm. Uh, one was the editor of American Glamour, a lady called Cindy Levy, who she's sort of like the more poised, grown-up version of me. We had the sort of like the same job and the same hair, but um, she's she's more of a lady and she's more refined and more. Um, in the Michelle Obama mode of they go low, we go high, I tend to react and be really angry if people insult me or whatever. She was like, she, yeah. And I've always sort of tried to channel a bit of what would Cindy do in hard times. Uh, do I feel happy at work? Yes. Can I say nine? You can. Always room for improvement, but yes. What three changes would improve your workplace happiness? Uh, move it out of Kensington. <laughs> um, box. Location. I know that everyone thinks it must be fabulous to work in Kensington, but just try and use the circle line five days a week and you will see a different side. Uh, so honestly, this is one of the only things that I truly don't like. Um, oh, three changes. Um... I would, um, I think everybody who I wanted to do my cover would just immediately say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Autocratic compliance. Yeah. That is um, always a negotiation. Um, what else? Oh, toilets. The, the toilets need to jump from the 1950s. So I'd say they need to jump from the 1950s to, I'd be happy with 1999. That would be really good. There we go. Yeah. Next. Okay. And then what we do now is we ask you a series of questions okay. that allow us to compare your results to yep. all the other people in the world who've taken yep. this test. So, gender. My, my gender is female. What is your age range? Uh, 45 to 54. Management, or, I suppose I'm management, yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, which job from this list most reflects what you do? Uh, 
writer-journalist, I guess. Is there anything else there? That's it, isn't it? Uh, writer-journalist, yeah. yeah. But Sometimes the, it says media. Yeah, that's yeah. the next question, yeah. which is which industry are you in? Uh, which industry am I in? Telecommunications publishing. There we go. So, uh, which country do you live in? Oh, ethnicity is white. Finish. Ta-da. Now. Do I get a prize? We'll see. All right. It's going to say... So what happens now is this normally takes about 10 or 15 seconds, so people get their results almost instantaneously. If you do it as part of a company, you get your results mm -hmm. instantaneously. Here we go. You're going to have a high score, I think. Yeah. Well, I don't think. I know you're going to have a high score. There's only one question where you scored at the lower end of the scale, and that was about your constant level of anxiety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Joe Elvin, superstar editor, your happiness rating is uh, 889 out of 1,000, or 88.9%. Okay. It's got your score there, and then underneath it, it's got the global mean. That's the average of all the people who have taken this test, which is 655. And then in your industry, in media publications, the total is 619. Well, so I'm not surprised. media yeah, is yeah. below yeah. the average, mm. but you score well above. Don't tell anyone at work, because I want to ask for a pay rise now. Yeah, so, yeah. You should. <laughs> and then, yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. what we do is we break that down into six areas. The first is reward and recognition, uh, how well you feel you're paid and whether you're recognised for your job. The information you get to do your job, whether you feel empowered to make decisions, whether your views are heard, well-being, whether the organisation cares for you, whether you're anxious, instilling pride, whether you're proud of where you work, and then lastly, job satisfaction, which is about your development and really your relationship yeah. with your line manager. Great. And on every one, you are green, you're off the chart. Can and you... I'm telling the truth. And can you imagine any time when any of those might have been oh, amber or red? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. But then, you know, interestingly, though, if in the context of a, something for broadcast, I probably wouldn't have been truthful about it in the moment, Yeah. if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, but, I, but you just have to believe me that I am being honest today. So, yeah. I, well, I believe you. Yeah. Um, and then if you were poor on any of these, if you click here, what we do is we help you understand where you scored poorly and what you might do. And then we have a number of matrices. The first one, which is the most important to us, is the well-being matrix. Mm -hmm. And on this, where we sh what we show you is where your well-being score is <coughs> uh, on a number of the questions that were asked against the industry. And you can see you there and the industries around wow. here. So actually, yeah. your well-being is much better yeah. than people in your industry. If you score poorly on that anxiety or depression question, We've teamed up with the uh, NHS, and what you can do is go off and take the NHS anxiety and depression oh, yeah. question. Yeah. It's 15 questions, and at the end of that, it tells you whether you should go and get advice. But you, you score on that well above the average. Then we've got a number of uh, matrices about work satisfaction, and on all of these, you're off the Richter. So um, the first one that we have is the stickiness index, and the stickiness index measures how likely are you to either leave your job or stay in your job, right. and you're right off the top. Your industry and the global numbers uh, are down here. The second is whether you're an apostle or an anarchist. And what we do use this for is to measure whether people are unhappy in their jobs and are saying, I hate where I work, it's a yeah. terrible place, I would never recommend anybody work here, 
or whether they're apostles and saying this is a brilliant place to work. Yeah. As you can see, Joe, based on the answers you've given, you are absolutely an apostle yeah. for where you work. Maybe I'm just having do. a honeymoon period because <laughs> I'm so new. Well, it's a long yeah. honeymoon period. Yeah, I guess after so. eighteen yeah. months. Yeah. Uh, the next matrix, we, we look at career development, whether you feel you're being developed, uh, which was very high. The next one is whether you feel included, whether your views are heard, whether you're listened to. Again, yeah. you're very yeah. high. So on all of these, you can see that you score well above the, um, the matrices. Yeah. An empowerment index, whether you feel empowered to do your job. Uh, and then there's a sense of purpose. Do you some, do something worthwhile? And then we've got uh, your line manager relationship and the last of them is the workplace environment, where you do score very highly, but your loose score brought you, um, or your, your feeling, I suspect, about that brought you down a little, but you're still above the industry and you're still above global. So the whole point of, um, of doing this is to help individuals really identify what it is about their working life that they either think is really good or they think uh, has scope for improvements. And then what we try to do is to help them yeah. improve through really practical actions. Well, I kind of wish I'd seen you about four years ago. But yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah, it's good. I think I've kind of got one of the, the one great print jobs. And I'm so, you know, I feel very, very lucky about that. So, yeah. Well, your, your scope to influence people, talking every week to two million people, is just quite remarkable. It's kind of mad, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now, I've got two last questions for you, John. Go on. The first is, what song makes you feel happiest? Gosh, that's a tough one, that is. Um, probably, oh, I know, um, probably George Michael's Freedom. I think it's an amazing song, yeah. And, and why? I love the lyrics. I love his sort of like joyous defiance in it, and it's just an, it, it's a completely timeless song that just gets in your bones every time. And my last question is: if you could nominate one person to take the Workplace Happiness Survey to mm. explore how happy they feel at work, who would it be? Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan yeah. has, uh, is going to uh, do this. Oh, okay. Well, I'd be really Later interested. Later in the year. Yeah, I want to know what his matrix is like. Do I have to pick someone else then? No, no, no. no. Yeah. no. Pe yeah. Piers, is, Piers is, a, is, a, <laughs> is a very, very good one. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but it will be fascinating to see if he's happy. Do you think Piers Morgan is happy? I think he is actually, yeah. yeah. But um, I think that it's, it'll be the things like getting up in the morning. And I, I don't know. I, I mean, I love Piers. I wonder how much he re it really doesn't bother him all the crap on Twitter. If he sort of like retweets me or engages me in conversation, I cannot believe some of the bile that I then get included in. And I know it's not directed at me, and I still find it, you know, I don't sit and cry in the corner about it or anything, but it's something in your day you don't need, isn't it? You know, so I wonder what it's like. He must get that onslaught. I just can't imagine. But you so, think yeah. he reads it? Uh, yeah, I think he does. Yeah, I think he's obsessed with Twitter. And if it's not him, let's, let's um, I mean, it must, it'll be changeable as well, but let's get Boris. 
see what his Boris. happiness index as well. Very yeah. good. Yeah. As opposed to maybe today or maybe in a month's time. Yeah, ask him today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, well, it's, it's not a good day for Boris today. We know that, don't we? So, yeah. Not going to be as easiest. Mm. Uh, Joe Elvin, thank you very much for your Thank you time. for having me. Thank you for your insights and uh, congratulations on an amazing score. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.